You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. As you can probably tell, this isn't James O'Brien. I'm David Lammy, sitting in for James while he's away on his holidays. I appeared on episode 21 of Unfiltered back in March this year, so I was really pleased when Joe asked me to come back um, and to helm this episode featuring our very special guest, Idris Elba. Idris is an actor, a DJ, and now a feature film director. His debut film, Yardi, is out on the 31st of August, But I want to find out how a young man from Hackney went on to become one of the biggest stars this country has ever produced. Now, I last saw you when you were giving an amazing speech in Parliament on diversity. Mm. And I tried a few months ago to get you to join me, Lenny Henry, Adrian Lester and Ian Wright. Yes. At the Chris Rock gig yes. in the O2, and you couldn't make it. I couldn't so I'm make really it. glad to see you. Well, thank you for, <laughs> for the invite. I was very touched by that. But we were in the midst of, I was talking about my nomadic experience. It was in the midst of moving and doing this, all sorts of things. So was it good? Oh, it was wicked. I'm sure. He yeah, made yeah. a joke, though, about Tottenham. Mm. It was quite a rude joke. And I just, I, I kind of feel like he knew I was in the audience. And I just <laughs> sort of climbed under my chair as everyone sort of looked and pointed. Really? Um, if you know what I mean. If he'd made it about Hackney, you might have done the same thing. But anyway, he How was great. does Chris Rock actually say Tottenham? Does he say... <laughs> yeah, he said, yeah, he said yeah, exactly yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So... I want to start at the beginning of this story, and the beginning of this story is very much you growing up in Hackney. And we're around the same age. Mm. You're a little bit younger than me. Mm. Uh, Obviously, look a lot better than me. (laughs) Thank you very much. Make me feel fat as I sit here. But nevertheless, uh, um, let's go back to the 1970s Mm. and to your wonderful Ceredonian and Ghanaian family. Mm which for me immediately conjures up wonderful foo-foo and <laughs> jollof rice yeah, yeah, and, oh, yeah, 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 food. Yeah, food yeah. And Sierra Leoneans are also, in West Africa, known to be... They've got a fantastic sense of humour. <laughs> so tell me about the home you grew up in. Um, OK. You know, I'm an only child. It's me, my mum and dad. We lived in a primarily in a council flat in um, Queensbridge Road, Holly Street Estate. Number nine, number nine, eight, two bedroom flat. And I grew up around adults. I grew up around my mum and dad who were always working. My dad worked at Ford's and my mum worked as a clerical assistant, only child. So oftentimes go to school, they'd go to work. I'd come home, I'd have a key, I'd get in, I'd be by myself for a little while, depending on what dad shift my dad was on. And um, that was, you know, my upbringing. I, I was very close to my best friends because, again, I grew up around my adults. And who were those best friends? Uh, well, my neighbour upstairs, Scott, who was one of my best friends, and a handful of kids at school. And, you know, I, I'll give you that picture just to say that, you know, growing up was great. 
because I had my cousins and my mum and dad. But, you know, I, I spent a lot of time alone, if I'm honest. You know, I spent a lot of time playing by myself, to be honest, because it was just just the way my parents worked. And, you know, I was mature for my age. So they would be like, you're big enough to let yourself in. You're big enough to go to school by yourself, da, da, da. So you had that sort of experience. I certainly had it because... I was being raised by a single mother where you'd, you'd get left on your own. You're told not to burn the house down. <laughs> yeah, Don't yeah. open the door to anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically you've got to kind of mature. Yeah, yeah. I remember my mum, you know, child support book come and she wouldn't be there. <laughs> yes. So she'd be like, go and get it yourself. I'm like, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I'd have to go do that, you know, and sign. And, you know, and the, the guy used to look at me. He used to know my mum, but he'd be like, mummy's at work? I was like, yeah. I said, okay, I'm not supposed to give you your own book, but here you go. Here's the £7.52 or whatever it was. Big money. I'd take 50p, buy myself some Tutti Fruities or something. And then, you know what I mean? I'm on my way home. Was uh, it a family that kept itself to itself? Your parents were obviously working hard. Or was there this sense of sort of more eclectic, extended family that sometimes is common in the sort of black or immigrant experience? Yeah, my my dad's brother lives here. He had five children, so we were always in and out of each other's houses. My dad came to England in the very late 60s and brought a a few friends that he grew up with who also settled in. So there was a, you know, a grouping of family and friends around us. My dad was quite a socialite. You know, he loved the pub. We used to have all sorts of friends in the pub, all sorts of walks of life coming from our house. Um, at work, he was quite a, a sort of a leader. He ended up being a shop steward for the union, you know. Ah, and, and that was, you know. So now the pub in those days, my, my dad, when he was around, also liked the pub. Certainly the pub in Tottenham was a sort of Irish, West Indian cockney affair. Would that have been the same? Exactly Just to put the down? same. <laughs> yeah, actually the, the owner... He was white, his missus was black, and his the pub was very Irish, very black, very African, you know, very Jamaican. And that was the, the hub. And my uncle, who was a DJ, used to play there on a Friday, and you'd hear everything from, you know, some Congolese music right down to, you know, dire straits. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it, it was a real mix. Uh, and, yeah. And you were hanging out in the pub as a young teenager? Yeah, all the time. My dad, No, before I was a teenager, because right. I moved from Hackney by the time yes. I was 11. 12, right. No, actually 12. So my dad used to take me down to the pub. And but them times there, you know, you kids could matter. go in yeah. pubs. They had a little community garden. Um, my dad was a bit of a pool shark. I used to watch him play, learn. Really interesting times. So he was smooth, your dad? Yeah, my old man was smooth. Yeah, yeah, he's a smooth guy. Yeah, everyone loved Winston because he had a big smile... Uh, he would assimilate your accent if you were Jamaican. He'd be like, yeah, man. You know? And if you were Indian, he'd be like, that's my brother. Listen, my brother, you know, he was that guy. <laughs> I mean, uh, so you've got quite a lot from your dad, clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, dad, my dad is very, you know, big, big personality in my life, for sure. Most immigrant families want their children to be doctors, accountants, lawyers. Mm. So... As you started to transition with music and then into acting, what what was the reaction to that? I, I'm trying to work out what you know. How has this happened? It was a mixed bag, you know. It was a mixed bag. Academia, you know. My parents were big on academia. My dad, he came to England on a scholarship, and he was doing marketing. And his only son was suddenly, you know, talking about 
being on the stage. It, it didn't quite re relate to his dreams of me, you know, having a degree and, and whatnot. And the first thing he said to me about acting is that actors don't make money. You know, that was the first thing he said. And my mom, my mom always, you know, she loved when I would, you know, be the sort of life of the party, doing impressions, doing a new dance, you know, DJ, and she loved it, eh, clapping. But then when it came to reality, you know, my GCSEs, I got average scores, but A in drama, A plus in drama. She was like, well, I suppose you're going to be an actor then. I was like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, you know, there wasn't a disappointment for my parents, but there was a warning. There was all these warning signs, you know, like, you know, get a job. And before, you know, I, you know, at 14, I was already working Saturday job, two Saturday jobs, you know. Then I was, before, by the time I left school, I was working with my dad in Ford's. You know, this idea that you have to work, no matter what it is you're doing, you have to work at it. And well, I was what did you early. learn from those jobs? I mean, I certainly, I found myself working at Kentucky Fried Chicken, McDonald's, security guard, every single holiday I yeah, was working. Yeah. But that was because we needed the money. And yeah. I wasn't getting pocket money or extra money yeah. from my mother. So I had to work. And working, often you sort of, you know, you're with older people for yeah. whom this is their regular job. What yeah. did you, certainly working at Ford on a night shift, yeah. what did you learn about yourself? What did it teach you? Independence. It just, it taught me independence. And by the way, you know, like I said, I grew up a lot by myself, you know, having older parents, you know. My dad was 33 when I was born. My mum was 27. So, you know, my parents were, you know, running around in the park with me when I was 10. You know, they were like getting on, you know, a little bit. And independence. I had independence. I got to these jobs. I think my first job was a tyre fitter. And I had to drive cars. I had to. I was entrusted to drive people's cars. And he asked me if I had a driver's license. I lied and said yes. And that was an independent thought. I remember if I say no, I don't get this job. And I couldn't drive, but I said, oh, yeah, I can drive. And he believes me, he gave me the keys to a car to move. I figured it out on the spot. And the independence, that, that sort of, you know, you've just got to do this, otherwise you don't get what you want. It, when I was about 15, I, was, I went to a boys' school. I, went, I grew up in Cannon Town. Cannon Town at the time was a real sort of order. The lads were like trendy lads. You know, you have to keep up with Joneses. You, mom, mom and dad would buy me high tech. I was like, I can't wear that. <laughs> Please don't buy me high tech. I, I can't buy me Tesco's best. <laughs> you know but I mean? <laughs> can't wear high tech at school. I want to get beat up. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So Where's I remember that my whole thing was about just independence. Yeah. Who are you? I mean, you've stressed that you spent a lot of time on your own. Mm. Who are you when you're on your own? Who was that young Idris? Was there a burning ambition? Are you reflective? What uh, sort of person are you? I was always someone that wanted to be someone else. <laughs> well, that happened. Yeah, did you understand? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I grew up in an era where if you were West African and you had a funny name, that was like a, a kick in the teeth immediately. <laughs> if you were dark skin and you happened to have ashy elbows or ashy skin, yeah. you was getting cussed out by all the West Indians. <laughs> You know, I always, I was just like, ah, oh, man, I wish I was like that. I wish I was like that. Weirdly enough, I remember, you know, sort of thinking, oh, I wish I was a slightly different complexion. Yes. Or I wish my name wasn't Idrissa. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wish it was Jason. And as I became sort of a teenager, had my own money, my body formed, my manhood become who I am, I started to see that I was actually quite different from everyone. And I embraced that. So when I was on my own, it was a combination of sort of watching people that I admired and trying to hone myself into being a bit like them, but being myself. What? Who did you admire? 
Daley Thompson. <laughs> Daley Thompson? Yeah. He was huge. Daley you Thompson know, was like... Doing so well the, in the Olympics. The most, yeah. the most, most yeah. incredible athlete. Sports stars. I remember, you know, a lot of footballers, sports stars. I think you've said in the past that you thought you could have been a footballer. Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was... I was in the first team of all sports in my school, from cricket to hockey to trampolining, first first team swimming, good footballer. I played it all rugby. I played it all, and I was just, like, able-bodied to do it. I, I ran for Newham, Newham Beagles. Yeah. Um, I was the second fastest in Newham at one stage, you know, 100 metres. And it was just, like, this natural ability to just... But it was a lot to do with this idea that I just want to be as good as as someone else. I just want to be as good as. It was literally a mindset. I want to be as good as that. I want to be as good as that. Even if I was making Lego, I would look at someone that was naturally good at it and look at mine and be like, I can't make mine look like that. I remember that it very It sounds early. like there's definitely quite a lot in your character that drove you to kind of want to be the best. I mean, if you were good at sport, you were succeeding... If you had the desire to start to ex- excel in acting, it sounds like there wasn't the kind of teacher, youth worker who kind of picked you up and started to make it happen. Quite a lot was going on in you, right? Yeah, but the, the truth is, is that there was in my drama teacher, Miss McPhee, in a boys' school, um, you know, the competition is ridiculous. You know, I wasn't the best footballer, there were kids that were amazing that were incredible, but I wanted to be as good as them. And I remember my drama teacher just going, you can only be the best you. That's what you can do. You can't be the, can't be John. You can be the best Idris. And that, that resonated with me massively. And, and I found myself like in drama, the best actor, the best communicator, the best director, the best scene writer, the best, like out of all the competition. And it was a bit weird because drama was seen as a bit of a, it was the only class that people could have a laugh in, to be honest, because it it was a boy's school and they were tough. Miss McPhee was blonde, beautiful, and she wasn't weak, but the boys took the piss a little bit. So, And how did you combine that? Because obviously in some arenas, being an actor, being a bit thespian, you know, might not be seen as the most macho masculine thing to do. I mean, I was singing mm. in my school and got quite a lot of the piss taken out of me. So yeah. how yeah. did you, how was that sensibility? You're obviously very comfortable with that. Maybe it's because you were good at sport as well. I'll answer that question if you sing a song now. Like, you know, <laughs> let's, just, let's just get this out. <laughs> You're not going to make a statement no, no, like that. It, Come on. Just, I can't Let do this that. Let this be I a radio cannot, first. I cannot do that. I, I don't want to make headlines. You want to make headlines. <laughs> One day I'm going to interview you, and that is definitely coming back up. You've got um, a deal. <laughs> all right, cool. When Miss McPhee was like, lads, we're doing this and you're doing it and you're being marked on it, everyone paid attention. And they would come to me and be like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? I found myself directing very, very early, you know, scenes. And, you know, in a boy's school, you had to play a mummy and a a daddy. And everyone would be like, I'm not playing the mummy. And I'd be like, I'll do it. Whatever. I'll do it. And be good at it. And they're like, you're really good at that. But, you know. I, I just can't see it was a yeah, mummy. I'm no. sorry. It's not, <laughs> it's not a role that I revisited much. But the point is, is that uh, I was so passionate about this this idea of being someone else that it just transferred into acting. So, like, it just became very easy to me. And I, I guess, you know, you get to a certain age in secondary school where, you know, you get either go with the crowd or you go on your own. Mm. And if you go on your own, you're, you're choosing to be 
bit solitaire. You're choosing that. And I, I did that. It just so happens, though, I was good at all the other stuff, so they didn't take the piss out of me as much. What would be your advice to a young you sitting in Hackney, sitting in Tottenham, sitting in Brixton, sitting in Sunderland mm-hmm. about the confidence that it requires to go your way? What would be your advice looking back? What would you want to say to that young person? I I, I think the advice I would have is just to be be organised with your thoughts. You know, I'm very I'm very much a go with the flow kind of person. You know what I mean? And I still am to this day. And if I was a lot more organised, I'm not sure if I'd be the same me, but I'd be successful. Do you know what I mean? I'd be more successful, more efficient. But I think, though, I, I meandered around my career for a while. When I moved to America, I had four years of not getting any work. And that was come partly to do with being organised. Partly to do with the luck, layer of the luck, you know, of, of sort of my career choice. But having organisation sort of, that's the one thing I couldn't do. Like I could imagine being someone else and being as good as them. But the guy that was great at Lego had all his red bricks over there, all his black bricks over there, all his green bricks over there. I just had them bricks together and just like could try and, you know, emulate him. So I would give anyone advice about whatever they're deciding to do is just be organized. And it doesn't mean just to be sort of like overly critical about the way you've set up your life is just to be prepared be prepared for what might come at you because if you're disorganized when something comes at you then it's an easy wipeout but if you're organized you end up sort of being able to weather the storm a little yeah bit, which is what you know now I, ha- I rely on a really amazing team who are organized and there are good times and bad times but they don't feel too sway because ultimately we're all prepared for it so let's go back to the states that's mm. a big decision. Um, and again, you know, I see a slight similarity because I went to America. Mm. I think there's often, isn't there, an odyssey of black men that want to be successful going mm. perhaps to America. There's certainly an acting, but, you know, in, in my circumstances, I went to university there and, mm. and drew a lot from that African-American experience. But um, being in New York on your own... Mm cannot have been easy Mm, mm. there must have been some low moments tell us about that um I wasn't on my own I was married at the time I got married very early in my life about 25 26 and we went with our savings not much money landed and it was you know when you go on holiday and you go I love it I can live here (laughs) I did that for a few years in New York (laughs) right okay and then ended up living there and uh, as soon as you got there, the reality of life just kicks in. Mm. You know, Where social. were you living? Uh, when I arrived, I lived on 34th Street. I mean, literally, like, living in Leicester Square or something, yes. you know. <laughs> and then soon that was eating out my rent, my, 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 my allocated rent funds. And we moved to Brixton and Brixton, Brooklyn, Brooklyn very quickly. Yeah. But I had sort of, at the point I moved to America, I sort of had a career in England, which was a good one. It's on television, television regularly. But, I, you know, I really, you know, that sort of beacon, you know, the Denzels, the Wesley Snipes, the Tay Diggs, these guys were just, like, killing it. And I wanted that. And that's what kept me going, you know. Uh, I think that's 
Well, you said there's an odyssey of black people leaving England, going to the American experience, because it feels from a different perspective, looking over there, that, wow, the grass is greener for sure. Look at all those successful black people. Look at those successful actors. Wow, you know, that's, that's Wesley Snipes. He's leading a movie. At one point, he was like 20 million a picture. That's impossible in our country. And that was very much part of my journey, very much, you know, I sort of looked at that. What sort of acting parts did you get in those early days? In America? Yeah. I didn't work for four years, so I I did a play for um, Sir Peter Hall, the late Sir Peter Hall. He did um, Troilus, Troilus, Troilus and Cressida off-Broadway, and I did an episode of Law and Order. And then I would fly back for smaller parts in bits and pieces in this country. You were picked up for The Wire by someone who saw you in Troilus and Cressida. Is that right? Well, you know, Troilus and Cressida was a showpiece of inviting New York casting directors to come. And a New York casting director came. She was amazing. She was lovely. Kim Misha, her name was. And she uh, said, I really like this kid. I'm going to introduce him to someone that I think might help him. They introduced me to Philip Carson and... and, um, another agent that had a small company and they, they loved me. And, you know, they began me on this journey of doing the rounds of going up for auditions, meeting different casting directors. And in one of those rounds, I met Alexa Fogel, who is the casting director for The Wire, who put me up for various things over the last two years of my, before I got The Wire. We'll get back to Idris in a moment, but first let me tell you a little bit more about his new movie. Yardi is the directorial debut from Idris Elba. A young man haunted by the murder of his brother leaves Kingston, Jamaica, to embark on a bloody, explosive quest for retribution through the Sound Clash cruise and dark underworld of 1980s London. Book your tickets for Yardi now at yardifilm.co.uk. It's in cinemas on August the 31st. Now here's Russell Kane to tell you about his show on Joe. Hi, Russell Kane here, and I'm hosting a brand new podcast for Joe, Boys Don't Cry, where I get a bunch of men together and force them to talk about the things we never talk about. Body hair, body shape, why do girls only fancy bastards, all the things we worry about but never discuss. Oh, and I'll also have a girl helping me each week just to make sure we're not talking rubbish. So go to wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, wherever, and download Boys Don't Cry now. Thanks, Russell. Now back to Idris Elba. You threw yourself into Stringer Bell. I mean, I remember watching The Wire in early days as a young MP in the evening. I'd be sort of, you know, where's The Wire? <laughs> and you just flew out the screen. Um, it's an iconic character. What mm. was it like to play? How do you feel about that character now, looking back? Um... <sighs> At the time, it was a great, it was a small role in a TV show. It was a massive opportunity for A, me to come out of poverty and B, you know, be seen in, on a HBO show. I don't think it was ever written to be the legacy it's become. It was really designed to be, you know, a smaller role next to the main role for one season. And, you know, HBO started to witness what was happening in terms of the audience response, in terms of the story writing, and actually reality as to what was happening in Baltimore. Mm. Uh, And it became a slightly different role Mm. and became bigger and snowballed. Mm. And to be honest, it became what it is in terms of it's 
iconography much later. I've sensed some discomfort, though, from you when talking about it a few years later, because in the end, he was a drug dealer. Mm -hmm. And... So you've, uh, I've sensed that you haven't wanted to completely big him up as the best thing since sliced bread. I think once you were asked to choose uh, a favourite scene, and it was actually his death. Hmm. <laughs> well, I think that you know the death, the celebration of his. No, the, the the I felt it was a very brave thing to do, and ultimately a big statement. So we're all idolising Stringer Bell, okay? But what? who are we really idolising? Are we idolising a smart drug dealer or a dumb narcotics dealer? Mm. Like, what are we saying here? Is it okay to pump a community full of heroin, but because you're smart at it, that makes you cool? Like, that was a problem for me, you know. It wasn't a problem at the time I was working as an actor, but then when I realised I'm being celebrated for something that, okay, yeah, drug dealing, okay, but why why can't he... What if he was a really smart politician, you know, smashing open doors in that way? Would we celebrate him as much? Doubt it. We celebrate him because he's a drug dealer and we can put him in a box. But, oh, by the way, he's learning in school and he's very articulate. You know, it's just it's the irony of it used to just make me laugh, you know. And I suppose there was not bitterness about it at all, you know. I think it was a very brave move on the, the writer and HBO to behead one of the main characters at the height of his thing. Because the truth of the matter is... You know, most drug dealers go to jail at some point in their lives. They get caught, no matter how successful they are, no matter how good to the community they are, they will end up getting caught because what they're doing is illegal. And and that's the truth of the matter. So as much as people celebrated the character, the harsh reality is, is that you either get shot or go to jail. I mean, Idris, I sometimes find myself reflecting on the Tottenham in which I grew up mm. and how easy it is to navigate British inner city life today. How easy is it for a young Idris to navigate Hackney or Canning Town and make it out, particularly in the context of drugs and crime? And I know that you've been a very conscious actor. Certainly you've spoken out about housing, uh, literacy for adults, and certainly about violence and gang crime and opportunities for young people. Mm. As you grow to more maturity, do you reflect on that and, 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 and sort of worry about the ability to make it out with all the temptations of quick money that, that, that exists and the problems of, 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 of drugs in communities like the ones we grew up in? Of course. I mean, like, I'm always conscious about what... Uh, what popular culture, music, film, whatever you want to call it, social media, is encouraging, is teaching our use, you know what I mean? Uh, my assistant's son is 14 years old. He's a lovely kid. And I look at him and think, well, you know, the music he likes, the, the clothes he likes, you know, he's he's got his eyes all over pop culture. And it only takes him to idolise the wrong person before mm. he goes down that route, okay? Now, for me... It's important, as I keep talking about individualism and, you know, you know, I got a job very early, such, such, such. The reason that is important is because you have to have your own mind. You can't blame society for everything. <laughs> You've got to be able to have your own thoughts. You know what I mean? Amen. And, and, and I think that's, that's, I read on Twitter the other day, 
And uh, this kid, he had highlighted some tune I had done on YouTube. And he said, you know what? When he just does things like this, it makes me think I can do whatever the fuck I want. And I remember thinking that's to me, that was the biggest compliment because I'm not known for making music particularly, yes, yeah. but whatever he thinks about me, he didn't know that about me. And then suddenly he's like, wow, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to follow a route. I don't have to be wowed by everything I'm seeing in a video or, you know, actually I can follow my own route. I and that's important. I think you're probably also a role model big time because you're, what they call, to use fancy words, a bit autodidactic. You are self-taught in music and in acting, in a sense. You didn't go to a big, fancy drama school. Mm. You kind of made it happen yourself, right? Mm. Mm. And so that business of doing your own thing, which, again, has got a sort of African make-and-men sensibility, mm. is quite mm. strong mm. in you. Yeah, it is, for sure. It's definitely to do with, again, individualism. It's about, I don't have fear of failure. You know, failure for me is another opportunity. That's really how I see it. Those moments where, you know, you'd be... I went to a boys' school and if you said the wrong word in class, everyone would clown you. And then it would be shame for like two, three minutes. I never feared that. I would stumble on a word, get the laughter and keep doing it until I got it right. And that's just my personal thing. Not everyone's built like that. But that's where you know i celebrate people that can think on their own because if you if you if you worry about fear if you worry worry about failure you definitely will not do anything and that's that's the only thing i can say i don't have any particular amazing ability but my ability is to overlook fear so therefore if i overlook fear and i mess up 15 times it's okay to keep doing it until i start getting good and then guess what you become really good at it because, <laughs> yes, of course. because you just you just overcome that moment. Yeah, and and actually, I think a lot of picking drama at a very young age, where everyone would clown you if you got up and all right. So, kids, who's going to jump up and pretend to be a fried egg? <laughs> Man's be like, no. And I'd be on that floor popping and doing it. Yeah, They'd be like, it's yeah. just so stupid. Yeah. But before you know it, everyone's doing it. And who's the best fried egg? And yeah. that's, that's you know what I mean? Yes. Like that mentality yeah. came from not just confidence, but just I'm an individual, in it. You know, that's really where it comes from. Now, today, the interest that sits here is absolutely a Hollywood leading man. You had in this country probably the breakthrough performances, Luther, you seem to be working the whole time, juggling being a parent, but really throwing yourself into these huge roles. How has that roller coaster been for you over the last few years? Um, tiring. <laughs> uh, it's it, it. You know, it's been incredible. Like I said, you know, the the, the celebrated moments are incredible. Coming back to England, being able to get a role like Luther, become a coveted, iconic role again, was an incredible thing. Um, but then it's about the maintenance of that, the maintenance of that trajectory and that, that momentum. Um, when you have a career that lives also in the States, as it does here, that's double the work. Mm, you you mm, know, um, you mm. do have to sort of spread yourself mm, a little thin. Mm, mm. Um it's been an amazing time. It's been a a time where I've been able to sort of secure my family and, 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 and my finances and 
you know, my health and, you know, that stuff is amazing because a lot of the time as an actor, you grow, you hand, hand to mouth, you know, that's yes. it. Yeah. And when you can get to a stage where you don't have to work for the money, that becomes very, very freeing. But it also means you have to maintain that, <laughs> you know, you have to maintain that. So I can say that it's been the best time of my life. Um, I've had some amazing tragedies within the same time, which aren't that public, to be honest, but there's been amazing times where I've had low points. Um, but I'm blessed. I'm very lucky. Um, the fact that we're sitting here, I got to direct Yardi. I know you'll get onto that, but being a director in a feature film for a feature film in our country was like, like one day I'm going to do that. Definitely one day I'm going to do that. And to sit here and talk about the film I've directed now is amazing. It's, I'm there. Well, let, let's do that. Mm. So I've seen the film. It is a wonderful, wonderful film. Um, I am hugely biased because it's a film that that takes me back to the 80s, takes me back to, um, uh, uh, in this context, a Jamaican culture, a, a, a West Indian culture. The film is both shot in Jamaica and in London. Um, it could have been just a tale, um, obviously based on Victor Headley's book, but it could have been a tale really of... Um, of a sort of London underworld. Mm. But this is a film that also has a spiritual and ritual quality to it as mm. it sort of pans back to Jamaica and sort of uh, a sort of ancestral past. So it's rich in colour and feel. Huge achievement. Um, Thank you, David. Tell me about it. how this came to pass. When did you know about the book? How did you get engaged? The book was, you know... Um, you're the same age as me, so we might have read it originally in the same time, which was late 80s, early 90s, but late 80s, as far as I remember, it becoming, you know, in, in, in you know, African, Afro-Caribbean community popular. Yardi, have you read Yardi? Have you read Yardi? Do you know what Yardi's about? And um, the term Yardi was earlier, you know, the term Yardi, I remember in the 80s watching the news, the the war on the Yardies, you know, that was a big deal. You know very well, yeah, Tottenham, violence, yeah. uh, Hackney, uh, Peckham, you know, th these areas, West London, there were big Jamaican communities where Scotland Yard were going at it. It was Yard, Scotland Yard versus Yardies, basically. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, um, but the book came, obviously, as a, as a, as a, as a spawn from that. I, you know, it was something that I read when I was younger. I didn't read much, many books, but Yardi was one of them. Uh, I remember I could relate to Dee, I could relate to the character. It, I, I knew, growing up in Hackney especially, which is much earlier in my life on, than I read the book, but growing up, I kind of knew those characters. Mm. I saw that area, mm. I knew it. it was, and Victor really written written it, you know, with that sort of novelistic approach, just to make you pay, turn the page, turn the page. And then this happened, and the violence and the descriptions of it all. So it really hit my, you know, sort of my consciousness. Um, fast forward to, you know, about four or five years ago where a script came across my desk um, Why did it come across your desk? I don't know. I think at that point, you know, I'd put out quite publicly that my ambitions to, right. to direct um, our community is a small community. So That's I think right. I did some small things where 
someone said to, to, to Warp Films, if you thought about yeah. Idris, this might be interesting for Idris. Idris is a DJ, Idris has this mm. some some background that might yes. help amplify this story. And that's how it came came mm. to me. And I was like, are you joking? Like, I couldn't believe that Yardi was sitting on my desk as an opportunity for me to direct. Had the meeting and we and we spoke, just like we're speaking now, about my experiences, about why I think I could make this work what what i liked what i didn't like about the film about the script and the approach from the writer of the original screenplay brock n brock was very spiritual he had taken on board some of the very subtle parts of the Mm. book that spoke about spiritualism Mm. and spoke about this journey and he embellished that um which essentially the film that we've got now is a combination of all of that you know, you got some amazing performances yeah. from Stephen Graham as the most scary drug lord. <laughs> I mean, you know, this was kind of string a bell <laughs> on, on speed. Um, and um, and the young actors, um, the two young leads. Amel Amin. And Miss yeah. um, um, Jackson. It, it, yes, Chantel Jackson. That's right. I mean, how did you do that? What was it like being behind the camera? It, um, it looked very easy on the eye. Beautiful, I would say. Well, those are very talented actors. You know, um, you know, we we spoke in depth about being honest. Um, Amel is part Jamaican, part Trinidadian, and Chantel I cast in Kingston uh, after a lengthy ca- casting process. And you know, they both came to the project with their arms open, like. Please, 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 please. Because the ambition for the piece was not to ham up any parts of the culture, mm. not to ham up any of the violence, mm. not to ham up any of, uh, of, of what we think Jamaican culture is. Mm. Uh, the idea with my cast and my producers was to be really authentic, even if it meant a- alienating some people, which is, you know, quite honestly... You know, this is not a mainstream film because, you know, unless you are, un- you can understand um, Jamaican culture a little bit, you may be lost. Okay. But it is a mainstream film in the sense that there is a moral tale within it that is universal. So, City of Gods, for example, was one of the films that a we spoke as a wonderful yeah. film, but not one of us, you and I, I don't yes. know, but I don't speak Portuguese. No. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've never been to Brazil. <laughs> yes. Watching that film while reading subtitles and it had a profound effect yes. on me. Yes. Absolutely. As because there's a tale in it. There's a tale in it that I can relate to. And that's, that's what we try to do with Yardi. I guess, though, in um, West Indian culture and Jamaica culture, because of the hybridity and its proximity to. Britain in terms of empire and things there is a sensibility that I think in this film that people can tap into and indeed yourself as Sierra mm. Leone and that Creole you know certainly when I've been in Sierra Leone it has felt like I'm in the Caribbean as well so yeah. that must have been something that you felt you could tap into because yeah. I thought the film was very accessible. In the three years four years developing that film there's been a real upsurgence of West African music and these guys are singing in 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 broken English practically you know and it's pop it's the biggest type of music now I remember growing up if you spoke anything like near African accent you you might as well get stoned you know what I mean (laughs) so that 
so it was encouraging because I was like, well, if they can listen to Nigerian music and, and Ghanaian music and sing along, then Jamaican, a film with Jamaican dialects that's pure isn't going to be too much of a challenge. And, you know, I, I, we've been thanked for not diluting the film down, especially in our country. And in places like America, some American audiences have been like, well done. I mean, it was a struggle, but we got it. We got the sensibility and we weren't kid gloved with fake accents you know you got real jamaicans and that was a real that's a real compliment for us you know it's what, been alienating for some audiences but you know for most people get it and appreciate it what has been the toughest moment in directing and making this happen um uh, the toughest i mean there were, there were so many variables to that answer to be honest but i think you know, we. My ambition for the film was to to um, to make something that was as culturally specific as Goodfellas is to the Italian culture, but have a worldwide appeal. And that's a tough thing to do. That's just it's just tough. The ingredients are sparse. You know, it's hard to do that. And um, just keeping that vision alive. There was moments where, you know, we felt maybe we should just water this down a little bit. And then, you know, making that decision and saying, nope, let's keep it as it is. Uh, let's not overcook it. Right. Um, that, that, that was the toughest thing, keeping on to that vision. Um, we're an amazing team. So even the tough moments were spread evenly amongst producers, actors and directors and, 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 the, and the, the crew. We're like, we got there. So you have been, um, or are, uh, a DJ, musician, actor, um, now directing. You forgot uh, a rapper, dog. Like, like, how are you going to forget rapping? Sorry, like, come on, sorry. man. Like, that's... <laughs> okay, rapper as well. I just like, you know. I just keep throwing I, it you're in. You're just because... making me feel really bad because <laughs> I'm just a politician. You know, Mr. Boring <laughs> from Tottenham yeah, no, versus no, 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 Mr. No, cool no, no, no. from Hackney. I've had to face this all my life. No, no, so that's you're, why you're, <laughs> you, what you do as a politician requires as much bandwidth as any director or any writer would have to have. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. But what, what's the future for you? What is it, you know, do you want to direct more clearly? You want to, mm -hmm. what, what, I mean, because across these two continents, mm -hmm. you know, Luther, TV, film, mm -hmm. what, what, what's the future? What, I mean, what should people look, be looking out for? For me, it's like, you know, more of the same, you know, um, I'm an entertainer. Um, so anything that lives in that, that under that title is where I, I think I live the best. Um, uh, I think that at some point I want to hand the baton on so that will take the sort of form of education of some sort, educator of some sort. Mm. I definitely feel like my legacy is to be able to teach some of what I know, which isn't particularly academic, but it's about that life, it's that individualism, it's that perspective. And that may take the form as a program, a school, an academy, whatever that is. I definitely feel like somewhere in my journey, uh, uh, some sort of education opportunity will be there. Well, it chimes with that theme of giving back and being conscious. Mm. And I think mm. certainly from where I'm sitting, I'm grateful for that. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm also grateful to Joe 
um, for this opportunity. This has been a wonderful, wonderful interview. Thank you so much, Idris Elba. Go out and watch Yardi. It was fantastic. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Thanks, brother. That's great talking yeah. to you, really. So what do we learn about Idris from this interview? I never knew that he grew up so lonely um, and spent so much of his childhood on his own. I think we also saw his discomfort around some aspects of his Stringer Bell character in The Wire. He talked a bit, really, about the context of crime now in inner-city Britain and elsewhere and about whether we should laud someone like that um, or condemn him, which I thought was really, really interesting. And, of course, the confidence he's grown into. He was delighted at the opportunity to direct this new film, Yardi. Um, he positively glowed, really, about that opportunity. And one really thought about a young Idris reading the book back in the late 80s and then getting this opportunity now to direct the film. The film's out on the 31st of August. And if you enjoyed this interview, you might want to check out Mark Hamill's episode of Unfiltered. Here's a clip. In Star Wars, I was 24 playing 18. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carrie was truly 19. In fact, I remember when I, I said, you're going to go meet Carrie tonight, and I was thinking she's 19. She's just out of high school, you know, and I'm a worldly 24. <laughs> then I meet her, and she has the composure and the demeanor of someone 10 years older than me. And she also managed to cram into a month more than most people. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Within an hour of meeting her, she's telling me these hair-raising details about Debbie and Eddie's marriage. Where I'm thinking, should I be hearing this? I mean, <laughs> it, really, she had no barriers. Like, she would just open up and tell you things. You know, I thought later, it's almost like she. I was an old family friend for 15 years because I never would have been that revealing about those kinds of things about my parents. Uh, certainly not the first time I met someone. Is what makes her memoir so riveting. Well, she was one of a kind. Do go back and check that out, along with the rest of the back catalogue. While you're there, make sure you subscribe to Unfiltered, leave a rating and review on iTunes, and if you know someone who might like Unfiltered, introduce them to it. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe.